Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm your host, Nick Hershon, guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by the University of Southern Mississippi School of Communication. The school offers educational opportunities in mass communication, communication studies, and media and entertainment arts. We take pride in our successful internship program and career placement, as well as undergraduate research and collaboration opportunities. For almost 40 years, the sounds of New Orleans have aired over WWOZ 90.7 FM, a pioneer in community radio. The formula has always been the same. The focus is never on the DJs, but on the music itself, traditional and contemporary jazz, swing, blues, R&B, Caribbean, folk music, and any other sounds unique to the Big Easy. If ever an on-air personality is tempted to spend more time on talk than tunes, they need only remember the station's call letters. WWOZ stands for the Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and the wizard spoke one of the most famous lines in film history when he told Dorothy to pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Since 1980, That philosophy has guided WWOZ through a rocky existence, marked by internal conflict, financial peril, and a devastating hurricane that forced the station to relocate. Today, WWOZ is recognized as a trailblazer, one of the first community radio stations to expand its listenership through streaming and webcasting technology. In this episode, we enter into the Land of Oz with Vanessa Murphy, a professor at the University of Southern Mississippi. Vanessa, welcome to the Journalism History Podcast. Thank you, Nick. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we're very glad that you're here. You have written a really fascinating piece of community radio history. And I want to ask you a few questions before we get into the station that you wrote about, specifically WWOZ. You mentioned your paper, kind of the significance of some other stations that came before it, including KPFA in Berkeley, California. The first right. station to receive a community radio license that was not affiliated with a church or a school. I found that very interesting, the involvement of educational institutions or religious institutions in the history of community radio. So could you give us some background just on the early history of community radio before we get to WWOZ? Uh, sure. It started out on the West Coast, and Lou Hill was pretty much the founder of that, and he was really focused on more of free-form programming and it sort of has roots in uh, World War II progressive politics, uh, activist politics. And from there, from his first station, he uh, started a few more through the Pacifica Foundation. And these were um, nonprofits. Uh, people donated money, and uh, some some people, you know, had had their own money. They invested in their stations. And that was around uh, 1949. And then in the early 60s, Lorenzo Milam started the Crab K-R-A-B station in Seattle. And then he moved on uh, to develop more stations and had one in Texas. And that's actually where the uh, Brock brothers got involved in community radio. And they're the ones who started WWOZ. So as we move forward, you're talking about the Brocks. In 1978, Walter Brock, a former director of a community radio station in Dallas, visited New Orleans, and you write in your study, he sowed the seeds, quote-unquote, of WWOZ, the station that we're going to focus on today, 
And Walter Brock became the station manager with some help from his brother, Jerry, who was a former executive from CBS Records. So what was the Brock's vision for the station? What did they want to accomplish with WWOZ? Well, I think that initially they, they had a record collection and they brought that to New Orleans. And there was um, just uh, one, one station left. So they knew they needed to come here and get the license for that community radio station. And I think initially they um, thought they would be playing sort of all kinds of music, not just New Orleans music. But when they got here, they discovered that there were so many varieties of New Orleans music. They knew about Louis Armstrong, of course, but they uh, found out about Cajun and Zydeco and different varieties of blues music and different varieties of jazz music that they decided that they would focus um, primarily on New Orleans music. And I'm going to ask you, obviously, more specifically, some things about this station, but if we could just take kind of a break here to say, what made you decide to research WWOZ? Are you from New Orleans or what's the connection between you and the station? Yes, I've lived in uh, New Orleans on and off, but mostly on since 1993. So I have a, a pretty long history here and uh, the, the station's just been near and dear to my heart. And I think that's true of most anybody who lives in New Orleans. Mm. And then as we, um, as we'll talk about, we'll get to later on in the paper, Hurricane Katrina had a a huge impact on the station and the community, of course. And so I was living through some of that and knew some of the people involved in the station. Okay. Well, for sure. And I definitely, we want to get to Katrina. Looking at the early history of the station, I had mentioned in the introduction that I'm recording before I get on the air here with you, that the Brocks wanted the station to be driven by the music, not the people playing it. That whole idea of wonderful Wizard of Oz, not about the man behind the curtain. It's supposed to be about the music. So how did that kind of play out on air? How was that philosophy seen by the listeners? Well, it was pretty awesome. And I'm so glad I had a chance to be here in the early 90s. And I wish I could have been here in the 80s. But it was, uh, and it's still true today. It's volunteer um, DJs. So there's management and uh, those people are paid. But the if you listen to WWOZ, the people that you're going to hear from are volunteering their time because they love the music and there is no, no playlist. You know, they would bring their own music in and play whatever they wanted to play and say whatever they wanted to say. And some of the, um, some of the DJs were also musicians and local artists, local personalities. Um, Ernie Cato, who's famous for the song mother-in-law, he was probably one of the more famous and more colorful ones. I think there is a, a clip on, on YouTube of Ernie Cato on WWOZ that's that's well worth a listen if you want to get a feel for what the old days were like. But it wasn't uh, a typical DJ. It was just people who knew the music, who loved the music, and loved the city. And it was uh, just a, a, a really great way to grasp the, the culture of the city by listening to this station. And so certainly your paper shows that this was a trailblazing station, pioneering station, but also it kind of had a rocky history. You described how the Brocks faced some challenges in running the station. For one, WWOZ did not have a physical location. Some hosts were recording programs at home and taking them to a transmitter shack in Bridge City, Louisiana for broadcasting. And in 1981, the station moved to a room above a music venue in New Orleans. In 84, they had moved into a three-room facility near the French Quarter. So how did all these moves affect the operation of the station? When they're moving around, did that somehow affect or even reflect the station's evolution? Well, I think it does in each move, you know, they, they moved up 
to a much nicer place. Uh, yeah, I love that phrase, transmitter shack. So <laughs> there really wasn't even a station, but that was just for about six months. And then, uh, which I, I think was typical, it was very seat of the pants. It was a, a lot of work to get the license. And once they got it, you know, they had, had to go on air and they just had to move fast and do the best they could uh, with, you know, very little money and very little staff. And then uh, within six months, they were uh, upstairs in Tipitina as a legendary music venue. When you talk to people who were listening to the station back in the day, they'll tell you stories about, you know, the, there was no air conditioning up there and the windows were open and you could hear the bus going by on the radio and things like that. But the most famous story about those Tipitina's days was that the um, DJs had a hole in the floor and when the bands would come through Tipitina's, they would just drop the mic down and uh, have a live live performances on air. So that's kind of fun. But um, th those rooms are still up there. They're used for other things now. But there's a, a lot, a lot of history in those early dates of, at Tipitina's. And then by 1984, they moved to um, a small two-story building in the corner of Armstrong Park, which was was fine. Uh, it flooded in Katrina, so that was uh, the reason for that move at that time. And then they did some fundraising. They were able to move to a, a very nice studio that's in the French Quarter. And as you were describing that, it almost sounds like where they were located kind of added to the authenticity. You're saying you can hear kind of the sounds of the true sounds of New Orleans, not just the music, but actually maybe the street traffic, uh, maybe what's going on in the venue right beneath them. Does that kind of add to maybe why people from New Orleans love this station so much? It really reflects the sounds that they experience every day? Well, that that was true when they were in Tipitina's. Uh, I don't and, and yes, I think when you talk, as I said, when you talk to people who remember those days, they almost inevitably will point that out, that, you know, the, the sounds of Tipitina's, the sounds of Chapatula Street were, you know, part of what we heard on the radio or part of what they heard. I didn't get to hear it at that time. And then when they moved to Louis Armstrong Park, uh, it was more closed off and had air conditioning. So I don't think that, you know, you had those same sounds. But it was cool. They were in a, a place called Louis Armstrong Park. And uh, now the um, location they have is is uh, much more typical of a radio station. For sure. With studios and all that in it. Sure. Well, and then as they went into the late 80s, they endured this tough stretch. You mentioned in your paper how a river barge knocked down the broadcast tower. All of the station's employees resigned in protest of the hiring of an unpopular general manager. Then a few years later, all 14 members of the board of directors resigned. There were lots of other internal conflicts, financial emergencies, and it looked like the station might even go under. But then you mentioned in 1992, the station hired David Friedman as its general manager, and you described Friedman's hiring as, quote, one of the best decisions ever made at the station. Why was that one of the best decisions they ever made? Well, it was it was pretty ramshackle up until the time that he came along uh, and you know, as you pointed out, there were lots of internal conflicts. And when I read the news articles about those days and look at some of the, the papers and the conflicts, I'm, I'm very grateful that they, they survived because they just barely did survive because there was so much going on. But uh, David Freeman just, uh, you know, he had a plan. He had a vision. He was organized. He was good with people. He was a great manager. And he just kind of uh, took it by the helm and uh, set the set things straight and got things in order. So, so that was 
very awesome. And he uh, remained the um, general manager for many years. And you mentioned how under Friedman, the station became what you called a streaming pioneer. That's one of the main ideas behind your paper here, why WWOZ is so important. When I was reading your article, I was surprised to find out that Friedman was pushing for a website with webcasting capabilities for the station in 1994, and the online programming began in February of 1995. That seems the really early, the very early days of the internet, uh, and yet Friedman somehow recognized that potential. So how did that kind of play into the history of WWOZ? Well, it, it was an amazing, wonderful thing because a small community radio station of, of any sort, and this is an example, is constantly struggling for money. And there's a limited audience. You know, the um, city of New Orleans supports the station, but it's, it's just a constant struggle for money. So they would do um, on-air fund drives twice a year, and that was their primary source of fundraising. But through the Internet, of course, they were able to um, capture an international audience. Of course, not much back in 95, but now and, and through the years, they began to uh, collect more and more money um, outside of the city of New Orleans. Whereas back in the early 90s, most all of the money was coming from the city because those were the only people who were able to hear the station. Sure. And, you know, you mentioned how streaming widened the listening audience and that led to greater fundraising success. The station's website received an average of 700,000 hits per month, and about 10% of the $250,000 raised during that year's spring fund drive came from online listeners. So they certainly recognized that going beyond the geographic region of New Orleans would lead to maybe more financial stability for a station that had struggled with that over the years? Yes, I think David Friedman, he had that vision, and he knew that could happen. Of course, uh, WWOZ is a, a unique station because it's in a unique city. So um, we were also had a huge advantage because we were in New Orleans. Visitors, you know, come here by the hundreds of thousands every year, large conventions, and people would become endeared to the station because it's it's very unusual, uh, wonderful station, you know, without the... Um, typical commercial playlist or typical commercials for that matter. And so people who visited here could take the music with them through the internet and would also be hearing the fundraising drives. So it was a way to kind of expand the New Orleans community throughout the world even, and to raise money throughout the world. Yeah, it certainly makes WWOZ stand out as a pioneer in this field, as you said. Uh, you also alluded earlier to this catastrophe that struck New Orleans that we're all familiar with in 2005. That August, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast and New Orleans was massively flooded. Many people had to relocate. WWOZ for a while had to move to Baton Rouge. And David Friedman was quoted as saying in your paper that the station's mission expanded. Quote, we no longer had to rebuild a community radio station. We had to rebuild our community. So during Hurricane Katrina, when New Orleans was facing probably its most significant crisis and maybe its entire history, what role did WWOZ play in trying to rebuild that city? Well, first, it um, play, played a huge role just in uh, collecting people. It was a really interesting time in that, it, and I was... Uh, I was actually in Mobile at that time, but back and forth between Mobile and New Orleans. And it, we all had 
cell phones pretty much. You know, we'd c- cut our landlines by then. And, but the cell phone towers were all down, so people couldn't contact each other. And maybe, uh, you know, maybe we knew that our, our best friend went and stayed with her mother in Texas, but, uh, you know, we didn't know the mother's name. We certainly didn't know the phone number. So it was really difficult to uh, figure out where people were and connect, and people were feeling a great loss. And so for the um, primarily the musicians community, it was, it was the same. You know, where is everybody? And are they okay? And the people were scattered all throughout the country. So um, that was one of the first things they did was they had a blog that just kind of for people to report in and uh, find out where they were and what they were doing and how we could, how people could reach them. So it kind of became, you know, a community without this physical community. It held uh, the musician community together, even though they were scattered all about the country. So that was a, a very significant thing. But um, also, they became um, more focused on particular causes, uh, looking out for the musicians, uh, whether it be health care, health insurance, and just thinking about how they can help the New Orleans community recover rather than just playing the music, which, of course, they continued to do throughout the crisis and, and for the years of recovery afterwards, quite a few years of recovery going on. You know, we hear so much today about distrust of the media, uh, of course, sometimes stoked by politicians, but lots of people who just feel that the media has let them down, has failed them, is maybe out to get them. Uh, it seems like, though, in this period, WOZ was able to kind of show the community that it cared and really played a very important role in connecting people who were trying to find each other in mid this terrible situation. Um, I, I just wonder, do you think there's any lessons there about how WWOZ handled Hurricane Katrina and the communication in its aftermath? Maybe something that stations or news outlets can do today to try to regain the trust of the public? Um, yeah, I, I kind of think of... WWOZ and community radio is in a, a bit of a different category than uh, uh, the New York Times or the Times-Picune or, or our typical newspapers, but uh, because I think it has always sort of been a friend to its audience, and I don't don't think it gets too much criticism other than maybe people wish they played more one kind of music and less of another. But, but yes, there's certainly... Um, a lesson to be learned about, uh, you know, how the media can be used to bring people back together. Now, of course, technology's changed a lot. It's now we sit here, it's kind of hard to remember that as recently as 2005, we didn't have social media. You know, a, a blog was sort of the cutting edge thing, and they did use the blogs to reach out to people. And uh, the, the other thing that was... Uh, more emotional, I think, was, you know, people were all scattered about and being able to listen to the station online really uh, made them feel comforted and uh, gave them a sense of, of being back home, even though they were far, far from home. Well, and as someone myself who has studied the early history of television, I know it can be very hard to find sources that help us as historians tell that story, it just wasn't recorded. There were a lot of people in the early years of TV and radio, I imagine, who
who didn't think to record these things. Maybe those technologies weren't even available. And so it makes it a little bit more difficult for you. How did you go about telling the story of WWOZ? Well, first, I was fortunate enough um, to have a friend. Isn't that a great way to start a research paper? <laughs> and that was uh, John Terry Cooper, who's mentioned in the paper. And he was the, um, the webmaster, as they called him back then. And I, I remember um, going to WWOZ always had a, a tent at Jazz Fest. And I remember going there to visit him and just the excitement that um, how excited he was to be doing these live broadcasts on the Internet, you know, in the in the late 90s. And there were problems and technical difficulties, but I kind of got to watch, you know, some of that from the very beginning. So I, I realized, you know, that that was historical, you know, not just for WWZ, but really for all radio stations, it, it, you know, they had the possibilities of getting an international audience so so that was great so I of course interviewed him and then he knew other people who worked at WWOZ and I interviewed um, David Freeman and David Cash who also worked on the web pages and the web designers and um, a couple more people who worked there so I started with that uh, and those those were very interesting enriching interviews and then um, the Times-Picune, the New Orleans newspaper, is uh, thankfully, the, the whole run of it is available online. So I was able to, and it's searchable. So I was able to go through that and pick out, you know, all the newspaper articles about WWOZ and piece together some of the history, particularly those uh, early years uh, before David Freeman joined the station when they were having so many conflicts and things going on. Um, most of that, I think, came from Times-Picune articles. But there's also some other um, publications. Gambit and Offbeat are two. Um, Offbeat's almost 100% music entertainment related, and Gambit's got uh, some, some local news, but also entertainment. They both had uh, quite a few archival resources available as well. And the, um, the station, www.org, the online... Uh, page has some archival materials there that helped out too. So, so piecing the uh, the media coverage and the interviews and some of the documents that my interviews gave me were were primarily how I found all the things. I'm so glad that you were able to find these unconventional sources, so to speak. I mean, some of them obviously are traditional. We try to use oral history interviews, trade publications, but. You know, you'd think you're doing a piece on a radio station and your primary source would be maybe the archives at the station and all of these original recordings. But when those are not available, I'm glad you were able to connect with some of the people who were so involved in its history. It really uh, made that history sing in your piece. Um, now, kind of moving to the way WWOZ is set up today, by 2017, you mentioned in your paper, they had about 100,000 local weekly listeners, an online audience that reached about 900,000 homes in about 200 countries, just amazing numbers here. It had 86,000 followers on Facebook as of a few years ago. The staff had grown to 17 full-time employees and about 75 volunteer DJs. So how is the station doing these days? Does it look like it's going to have a healthy future? Yes, it definitely seems like it's uh, much more stable financially and healthier than than it's ever been. And And I think it's pretty obvious that it's the um, global broadcasting that makes a difference when you're a nonprofit and you rely on listeners to donate money. 
Yes. Well, we're glad that it is still going strong and hopefully will for many more years. You've certainly shown us how important it is not only to New Orleans, but to anybody who maybe is a New Orleans transplant, just somebody who is interested in this kind of music uh, they can hear now across the world. So as we kind of wrap up here, a final question we always ask guests on the Journalism History Podcast, why does journalism history matter? Well, in this case, um, I think it matters because it has really played a role in community building. It's played a role in um, advancing the New Orleans culture around the world. And it also played a role in helping uh, manage a crisis. It played a role in helping people heal through a crisis. And it plays a role in just uh, making local music and local culture something that can be universally relevant. Sure. Uh, You certainly have shown through uh, your work why the history of the station is so important for a community. I think that's important. Like, Yes, you've shown it is significant nationally, maybe internationally. It's webcasting technology uh, was a forerunner in that, but also just what it means to local people. I love research that's about that, that's about the community, and we don't see enough of it. So thank you, Vanessa, for doing this great work. And thank you for your willingness to appear on our podcast. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Nick. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Journalism History Podcast. An additional thanks to our sponsor, the University of Southern Mississippi School of Communication. Until next time, I'm your host, Nick Hershon, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.